From WPVMLP in Asheville, you found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons, and this is the latest from Glasser.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. I've spent a quarter of my life writing about food, and it only recently occurred to me how unusual that is. I think a lot of people find culinary writing to be silly. They just don't see anything meaningful or serious about it. But for those of us that write about it for a living, we take it very seriously. Because we aren't just jotting down someone's potato salad recipe, we are archiving cultural history. Archaeologists often demonstrate that culinary writings and records can be some of the most revealing archives they find. It reveals how trades function, how agriculture systems worked, it shows trends, fashions, and habits of the day. Particularly in marginalized or offset communities, ones that weren't written about with great enthusiasm, their kitchens often hold the most informative data available to find out how they lived. For me, one of the most eye-opening parts of culinary history is the way food evolves over time as each generation takes what their parents and grandparents taught them how to cook and adapts it to their own tastes and sensibilities. Though each change can be subtle, over time, it can be a total sea change. El Paso native Rachel Gray has seen that gradual evolution firsthand, watching her grandmother pass traditions down to her mother and eventually to her. Se cuecen las carnes aparte. My grandmother Gragra instructs as I arrange each of the meats onto separate plates. She's been gone for 25 years, but comes to visit when I cook. I remember being around 10 when I began to assist her. No longer a child begging to stir something, but a pupil requesting guidance and developing my own instincts within our heritage of sustenance. Her love of cooking originates from her gift for nourishing others, a ritual healing where she would drop into her ancestral alchemy, conjure familial expertise, and invite them to join her in the dance of preparation. In my mind's eye, Gragra carefully lays tattered from the kitchen of cards before her with sacred reverence. She skims over their scribbled spells, using them to reconnect with her mother, Mama. Her hair, the color of aged lace, twisted up in a loose bun, her impish eyes overflowing with love. And with her grandmother, Mama Pablita, their spirits joining together, commanding the kitchen as one. Gragra intuitively improvises, adding her attributes to the familial dish. And as I relish in their creations, each bite invites me to embark upon a voyage through our gastronomic endowments. I move to the stove and gently stir the saffron into the rice. I remember being fascinated by Gragra's adeptness in the kitchen, the speed of her knife as she julienned, the stiff peaks of her hand-whipped cream. She used only authentic ingredients and would frequently bring home treasures, like asedero cheese made by the local nuns, wrapped in wax paper and still warm. I came running, begging her to peel slices off for me. Or the jagged blocks of Mexican chocolate, infused with cinnamon and chilies from some hidden market across the border. How she found them and their artisans, I used to wonder. But I experience it now as a web of coveted information passed down in secret culinary veneration. 
As the rice begins to boil, its spirited bubbles summon me back to when Gragra took me to one of those mercados, buzzing with locals bargaining fervidly, gritos colliding in the air. We wound through the stalls of clanking children's toys, jumping Mexican beans, quesadillas stacked with mountainous wheels of pungent cheeses, and santeria shops brimming with mysterious saints for every ailment. Her hand, always silky and well-manicured, tightly grasped around mine, pulling me safely through the crowds, around carnicerias and past pescadores calling out the daily specials. We passed many candy shops before arriving to her favorite dulceria, where she was greeted with kisses on either cheek. Excited chatter erupted as they caught up on family and their favorite novellas before addressing culinary needs. My eyes widened and traveled around the stall, dancing and darting from handmade chocolates to layers of vibrantly colored plastic bags hanging from the walls, filled with tamarind-coated candies, limon powder, and chicle gum. Gragra selectively chose blocks of cooking chocolates, loose spices, infused sugars, each element then delicately wrapped for our transport back across the long lines over the border and home to El Paso. I turn the burner down and add the chicken and chorizo into the rice, then place the lid on the skillet. As they simmer, I thumb through her recipe boxes, pulling one out. It's like reading a love letter, capturing her nourishing care. Her scribbled handwriting evokes desires to better understand the meaning behind her measurements to seek the essence of the recipe, and add mine in as well, allowing the culinary instincts to maturate in me the way they had in her. Some of the recipes are incomplete or written in shorthand, a further bidding to uncover the heirlooms and search for the alchemy that stirs within, the one she cultivates still through antiquitous offerings of tamal indio, pollo con mole, and bacalao. I feel her presence every time I step into the kitchen. I call on her and Mama as I tie my apron around my waist, pull ingredients, and mentally order my steps toward the completed dish. Gragra's apparition peers over my shoulder, whispering in my ear, encouraging me to fill in the blanks with visceral selections. She and Mama join me behind searing hot skillets with wide, inviting smiles and soft, legacy-bearing hips. They volunteer piping hot guidance as I lift the whistling lid, steam escaping into the air, swirling around and within our spirits. The rising aroma transports me to Mama's kitchen as I nestle the mussels into the pan. Memories echo through my mind of her birds as they chirped from their massive yet delicate cages next to the open kitchen door. Their melodies flutter forth images of the family picture wall, reading like a treasure map to our roots and the culinary jewels bestowed. It's my turn to add ancestral idiosyncrasy, to take my place in our line of nourishing magicians to conjure and reconnect, stirring their quintessence back to life. I feel a coming home when all burners are aglow, sauce splattering, oil jumping from the pans that cradle them. I bring in my distinction of flavor as I trust intuitive selections to enhance our dishes, honor our tradition, and embrace the elements our ritual evokes. 
I turn from the oven, set the steaming skillet down, and offer our creation to those I now call family. My neighbor Kevin, always eager for a home-cooked meal. My best friend Jess, her newborn baby cooing against her chest. And our friend Fall, back from hosting a massage retreat in Thailand. They sit around my table in anticipation as the skillet is passed. I witness them embark upon their individual tasting excursions. I serve myself and take a bite. Closing my eyes, I allow the spicy chorizo to bite playfully at my tongue, the vibrant rice to further invoke Gragra and Mama's spirits. I open my eyes to find them. There, within the nibbling of juicy chicken, the extraction of succulent mussels from their shells, and the sustenance of empty plates and full bellies. Our ancestral assemblage can never be taken. With each preparation, with every bite, we partake again in our communion, revealing through our nourishing ceremony that nothing can separar las carnes. Krista Tortora reading Rachel Gray's From the Kitchen of. You can find it and all of our text from our backstories on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. Softly and clear. 
Culture shock can hit a million different ways depending on where you are and how deep you swim into the community. Beyond language barriers, driving habits, and dietary traditions, being the stranger in a strange land can be an intimidating prospect. When Ryan Wells took the opportunity for a study abroad program in college, he wound up taking on more than just the part-time job he thought he'd signed on for. Here he is reading his story, A Pint of Diplomacy, on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I embrace my new job as ambassador. Unbeknownst to the U.S. government, I was representing my country from behind the bar of an English pub. In 1990s pre-internet London, I provided important services for local residents, like distinguishing Ohio from Idaho and revealing the pronunciation of Disney's new film, Pocahontas. I learned during my two years as a barman, second A mumbled like their Birmingham, that many Londoners had never actually conversed with an American. I delighted in the role, an unexpected component of my overseas experience, until one evening in October of 1995. The impromptu embassy I had established within the neighborhood pub was a pleasant, welcoming place until an irate mob gathered at the doorstep. I had never been overseas. In college, I stopped by Ohio University's travel abroad office, which was a room with a single filing cabinet stuffed with brochures. After sifting through a hundred with glossy photos of attractive students chatting amid 600-year-old cathedrals and requiring thousands of dollars to study in Europe, I found a program I could afford. A grayscale pamphlet offered a temporary UK work permit for 150 bucks. It provided a form, a London address, and about 30% confidence of legitimacy. With a blend of courage and naivete, I mailed a check. The address, I discovered after meandering London's urban labyrinth, led to another one-room office. Inside were job openings scribbled on index cards pinned to a bulletin board. Most positions were for handing out flyers on the street that advertised dance clubs. Through the unreliable youth hostel grapevine, I confirmed a rumor that some pubs offered jobs with accommodation included. After a brief interview secured by calling random establishments, I was mostly certain an unintelligible Scottish man hired me. My pub career had begun. During the first few weeks, I learned about shandies, light and bitters, lager tops, and other cryptic versions of beer. I also learned I couldn't understand anyone's accent. Eventually, I picked up the speech patterns, sans Scottish, as well as the English style of customer service a limit of two ice cubes for mixed drinks, and complaints to be addressed with confrontation. I also deciphered oddities like making change in a system without quarters and learning the word D-R-A-U-G-H-T was just draft. Eccentricities once intimidating now became part of my travel experience. I was fitting in. The pub offered a respite from the bustle of London's Piccadilly area. Serving both white and blue-collar crowds, it felt like a living room with its dark wood, carpet, and cloth furniture. Regular patrons added a layer of well-being by their dependable routines. When they arrived, where they sat, and what they drank transpired like clockwork. 
As regulars became familiar with me, I noticed reactions that progressed through stages. First, everyone remarked at my pronunciation of words like tomato, lager, and battery. Then, I got to witness multiple attempts at American accents. Most sounded like Robert De Niro just after a wisdom tooth extraction. Eventually, deeper conversations arose. Talks of Greyhound buses and how a forward pass works graduated to subjects such as Utah being an unconstitutional theocracy. The complex issues forced me to analyze aspects of America I hadn't considered. Like a thesis from a high school writing assignment, my experience in a foreign country was teaching me just as much about my own. Questions of law persisted. Quirky stories like American millionaires bequeathing estates to Pomeranians appeared in newspapers, provoking discussion. Complex legal inquiries surfaced too. I once faced an incredulous group of law students fascinated by America's system varying by state. They had to confirm with me that a murder resulting in the death penalty could be committed just across a state border and merely lead to prison. I verified, as much as a non-lawyer in his early 20s could, as they hopped back and forth over an imaginary line while mimicking exaggerated stabbing motions. After a few months, I began noticing a downside. Every so often, an archetype surfaced that tarnished my diplomatic experience. The anti-American. Many Londoners grumbled about tourists or bemoaned American foreign policy, but a small contingent openly despised Americans. I first discovered this jaded persona when overhearing two young English couples espouse their hatred for anything stateside. They reviled the politics, television shows, music, clothing, hairstyles, possibly the letters U and S, anything. The group was unaware of my nationality, so I witnessed their discussion unadulterated. It was pure vitriol. Anti-Americans rarely confronted me directly, but it happened. I had backup, however, provided by the regulars. I was part of the family. Any rare malicious attack by a stranger was met with a quick defense. I was their American. On that late October afternoon, though, I found myself on my own. I had run some errands on that Tuesday afternoon. I returned to the pub, also my home, about 20 minutes before my five o'clock shift to change into my white shirt and black tie. Instead of the usual smattering of 10 or so people, I weaved through two dozen businessmen keeping the afternoon barman busy. I returned from my room upstairs and clocked in for what I thought was just an unusually busy shift. The crowd had already doubled. I immediately started pouring round after round, no time to ask the other barman what was happening. I didn't see a single regular either. Soccer matches typically drew crowds, but the time of day didn't make sense. Yet everyone focused on the mounted television. I also caught pieces of conversation mentioning going mad, falling apart, and America. While drawing a pint of bitter, I glanced up to see everyone watching a courtroom scene. As I set the pint on the bar, an image answered my question, yet provoked many more. O.J. Simpson. 
Why was a crowd of Brits fixating on the OJ trial? Over the past year, I had seen a handful of brief news articles. Occasionally, I fielded questions while working, but there was little interest. No one in the UK knew who OJ Simpson was, and I didn't follow the story. Yet the pub was packed with locals who left work early to witness the verdict. I then realized I was facing my nemesis, the anti-American, as a collective mob. Their interest didn't lie in this man's fate. They wanted to watch the system fail. Everyone in the pub wanted to see the most powerful country in the world, the nation that inundated their city with its rude citizens, that churned out movies with simplistic plot lines, that marred the landscape with fast food franchises, that absurdly called lifts elevators, fall apart. The desire for schadenfreude united this bloodthirsty mob. Everyone engaged in the, could he really get off, discussion. I also overheard multiple anecdotes of incidents with ill-mannered Americans. Everyone had their own story of some affront caused by a bloody yank. A man by the TV reached up and maximized the volume, while another admonished the crowd for talking. They quieted, and the verdict was read. Eruption. Drinks flowed in the suddenly raucous atmosphere. The mob had gotten what it wanted. My homeland had lost its way, and this horde was ready to celebrate. Thankfully, no one had detected my accent in the environment too busy for chit-chat. I spoke curt phrases and avoided eye contact. The approach worked until that odd fraction of time when even boisterous crowds can briefly fall silent. At that moment, while making change, a distinct R sound in the word 30, perhaps, my conspicuous American twang popped out like a prairie dog wearing a 10-gallon hat. The man looked up from his change in disbelief. He stammered, Are you... American. I rapidly considered my options. Claim Canadianism, trial test my marginal Irish accent, or face the mob. His question grabbed the attention of half the pub, and they all stared at me expectantly. I confirmed. Like a fireworks show that has slowed its pace, causing brief suspicion it might soon be over, but a sudden burst excites anew, the place again exploded. The bombman's American. His bellow engulfed the entire establishment. A flurry of condescending remarks about America losing the plot and having a good run cascaded around me. Jokes about booking trips to the U.S. with ex-wives made their rounds, while check his permit and call immigration got some laughs. I continued serving drinks stoically as hostile individuals attempted to provoke a reaction. Me working behind the well-lit bar turned into their vaudeville entertainment. I didn't react. I can't claim it was a strategy since I didn't know what else to do. I just continued serving, but it was difficult. Each transaction came with a caustic remark or condescending tone. The mob had roiled in anger in me, causing the desire to counter their mocking behavior with my own. They were seeking an excuse to elevate the situation, a reason to do more than merely hold their torches and pitchforks. They wanted to break down the walls of my embassy's goodwill. They nearly did. 
Gradually, the mob dispersed. Visiting the pub on a weekday may have been a rare event for many, so the gathering didn't become an all-night affair. Finally, some regulars arrived, occupying their usual seats at the bar, bewildered. They ordered around, curious about the unexpected crowd. I recounted the basics. They were as surprised at the event as I was, commending me for surviving. They affirmed that, had they been able to fight their way to the bar, they would have defended me. I answered a few questions for them about the trial as best I could. The subject soon turned to something else, probably soccer, as my fellow barmen and I put the pub back to working order. One of the locals, who only drank English ale, then announced he was going to order something different for his next drink. Such a move transcended growing a mustache or attempting a new hairstyle. This was on the par with trying out a new religion. After hearing my story, he decided to have, for the first time in his life, a Jack and Coke. It may have been in tatters, but my embassy remained open. Oh, uh-huh.
Take out your phone. Okay. I got a number for you. Yeah? All right. 719. Is this going to be weird? Nope. Not at all. Okay. 719. It's 266-266-2837. 2837. Okay. Here we go. Welcome to Caller Notes. 
Your emergency what? hall and oats helpline. <laughs> to hear one on one, please press one. To hear rich girl, please press two. To hear man eater, please press three. To hear oh, privatize. Got to. Well, <laughs> this is amazing. It's a it's an actual Holland Oats hotline. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Huh. For all your Holland Oats emergencies. You need it every now and then just to, to bring some joy into your life. Absolutely. Is, uh, I wonder, is... The hotline used to be a thing, didn't it? It was more prominent than it is now. I feel like I remember the, the Butterball hotline. What's what's the Butterball hotline? Butterball actually has a hotline number that you can call with all of your turkey troubles around Thanksgiving. Hmm. And they've got like chefs online that will help you troubleshoot why your turkey came out dry or what you can do to fix this or why it's not thawing appropriately. Or if, if something's wrong, they can send you a new turkey or, or whatever. That's pretty amazing. Have you have you called it? I never have. No, hmm. but I know I know people who have. I think my grandmother called it one time for something. But I've, and there's hotlines on everything. Like Doritos has a hotline. I've never called it, but maybe we should sometime. That should be an extra episode, a bonus episode of this show. Is we should call the Doritos hotline sometime. I agree. We should do that. Yeah, let's do it. We'll we'll, we'll figure out a time to call what, call what, what, all of the hotlines. What would they troubleshoot with us? I don't know why your Doritos or what if you got like Cool Ranch in your in your nacho cheese Dorito mm, bag? A low a low spice Dorito. Yeah. No spice. Know, no spice Dorito. There can be all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. Well, Pennsylvania author Ellen Skolnick found herself calling a hotline when a wayward bag of tater tots piqued the ire of her and her husband. Here's Terry Terrell reading Ellen's story, Totline Bling. It was sometime in 2021. I don't remember the month, because they all ran together. We were quarantined in our apartment, not talking to strangers, trying to avoid COVID. Along with the rest of the country, we were unsure about what was risky germ behavior and what was okay. When we brought packages into the apartment, did we really have to wipe them down with a Lysol wipe like we did once, then gave up because it was too hard? Should we leave our mail on the hall table for a week? A month? Should we get the mail at all? For a few months, we didn't even go to the supermarket. All those strangers, all that sneezing, all those germs. I tried ordering groceries online, and it was fun at first. I made my online list, I clipped digital coupons, and selected a time slot to pick up my order at the local supermarket. But the time slots were all full. I guess I could drive 20 minutes to another store. Then when I picked up the order and saw they were out of orange juice and substituted Sunny D, the junky non-juice alternative, the yogurt was missing and the milk was a pint, not a quart. Then there was the time my request for two-pound Brussels sprouts arrived as two Brussels sprouts. Yes, two little cruciferous balls for two people. Night after night, I made dinner at home because that's what I'd always done. Before COVID, when my kids were younger at home, I made dinner for five every night. Our family is a big believer in everyone eating dinner together. Now my kids are grown and have their own homes, but I still make dinner for two most nights. Quarantine made eating at home the sensible choice. No one was risking their life by going to a restaurant. Our only treat was the occasional carryout pizza slipped in at a high personal risk. Maybe that's why our call to the Orida Tater Tot complaint line was so memorable. I was so bored. I remember it well. My husband, David, has been a fan of Tater Tots since they filled the middle section of his plastic school lunch tray many years ago. 
He's a vegetarian. So he has happy memories of Friday school lunches, the day that a meatless alternative was offered and tater tots were the featured vegetable. In fact, that was the first question from the friendly Orida girl who answered the consumer hotline phone. How long have you been eating tater tots? She asked David. It was one of those scroll down moments that make you realize how old you really are. Have you been enjoying tater tots for one to three years? The sweet girl asked, offering up the first possible response in her survey. No, my husband replied. Three to seven, she guessed, scrolling down in the timeline of tater tot consumption. I've been eating tater tots for probably 40 plus years, David answered, cutting to the chase so the poor girl didn't have to go through the 97 other possible responses. So why would a lifelong fan of the crunchy baked potato bites call the complaint line anyway? After a lifetime of enjoying the potato goodness of tots, the current batch just wasn't up to snuff. Yes, we were grumpy and hungry, but it wasn't completely a crank call. Something was wrong. I had torn open the bag of tots, dumped them on a cookie sheet, and slid them into a 400-degree oven. My oven is a professional chef oven that came with our apartment. It was probably bought at a going-out-of-business sale by the shady developer who removed our building, but it gets hot. Like Chef Gordon Ramsay yelling, Cook it for shite's sake, hot! I burned my hand, wrist, and parts of my arm on that oven hot. It should have been ideal for crisping up the tots. I checked on the tots after a half an hour and resisted taking them out of the oven, even though we were hungry. Better let them bake for almost 45 minutes until they turn golden brown. They looked delicious, and the kitchen smelled reassuringly of hot oil like a McDonald's parking lot. But when we sat down to eat, David remarked how small each tot was. And I agreed. I'm not a connoisseur of the potato pieces like he is, but I agreed they looked undersized, almost as small as a penny. Tots are usually the size of a quarter. We were both wary, because that's a common switcheroo pulled on consumers these days. The bottle size shrinks, packages contain two fewer cookies, net weights are not a full pound, but the price of the item remains the same. Could Orita be pulling this sort of freezer fraudulence? Then we both tasted the tots, and we were really disappointed. It was like an old restaurant joke punchline. The food is terrible, and such small portions, too. The tots were dried out. There was no potato interior. The tots seemed to be only a very crunchy exterior with a dried-out hollow interior. The headline on the package promised golden exterior and fluffy inside, and these did not deliver. There wasn't any soft mashed potato filling. Could our bag have been expired? I'm a mom who used to urge her kids to eat the yogurt dated a month ago. It's yogurt. It already has bacteria in it. It's fine, I swear. Was it possible that my bag of tots was old and freezer burned? Was that why my tots tasted like stale toast? But what about the size? Our millionth dinner at home was turning into another disappointment. After months of not being able to go to restaurants, I had made plenty of delicious home-cooked meals. Mushroom chicken and broccolini, African peanut soup, and home-baked bread. But that night, I was tired of being quarantined. Tired of cooking and completely uninspired. Dinner was a can of tomato soup, soggy, overdressed leftover salad, and random cheese hunks from the refrigerator bin. The freshly baked, hot, and crunchy tots were supposed to be the highlight. Not even a hearty Dunkin' ketchup could camouflage the slightly dusty, overly crunchy taste of this batch of tots. We needed answers. We were compelled to call the Heinz or Ryder consumer hotline and find out what was wrong. 
After answering questions that included how long David had been a happy consumer of tater tots, where we purchased the offending bag, what was the number on the back of the bag, how much we paid, and other details we couldn't remember, the consumer complaint girl did some tapping on her computer. We were impressed with how seriously she was investigating our inquiry, how much attention she was giving to our perplexing potato plate. We were lucky to have reached the Nancy Drew of frozen potato products. She looked a few things up, kept us waiting a few moments, and reached a conclusion. You have a mispackaged product, she reported. We had inadvertently consumed mini tots that had been slipped into the wrong bag. Minis are smaller in size and don't contain as much soft potato filling. Well, none at all if you ask us. Evidently, it was not a big enough factory fail to sound the alarm for consumers. Nothing dangerous mixed in. No miscellaneous allergic ingredients or plastic pieces got into the bag. Just small size tots instead of regular size. No need to issue a recall. No need to sue the company. After realizing that she was dealing with an experienced tater tot eater, the polite and sympathetic consumer hotline girl had her answer. She is snail mailing my husband a paper coupon for a free bag of regular sized tater tots. It should arrive in 10 to 18 days. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher, Paul Choi, Marianne Pompano, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music on this episode by Glasser, Sigur Ross, Hanya Rani, and Patrick Watson. 
Molly Pardon, Sparkle Horse, Faye Webster, Joanna Sternberg, Slow Dive, The Sweet Enoughs, Goldman, Colleen, Meg Baird and Mary Lattimore, Billie Eilish, Ben Goldberg, and Drake. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell helps keep the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM. 